for the kind introduction. Um, let me say that I could not have picked a better day to assert the primacy of domestic politics in peacemaking as the situation in Gaza continues to deteriorate. Of course, everybody understands fully the importance of domestic forces and, and uh, the impact they have on Israeli-Palestinian relations. So my talk today essentially tries to do the following. Number one is to try and describe the basic characteristics in Palestinian uh, domestic politics that are relevant to peacemaking. I then will try very quickly to go over the reasons why the domestic conditions in Palestine have deteriorated to where they are today. And thirdly, I'll say something about the implications of that, of course, to the peace process. Um, and fourthly, I'll ask a question about how to change that. How can we change the domestic conditions? Is there a way that we can restructure Palestinian domestic conditions in such a way so that the environment, Palestinian domestic environment, would become more hospitable to peacemaking. So my basic um, thesis then is that the current Palestinian domestic political conditions are such that they constrain, to a large extent constrain, Israeli-Palestinian relations and make it impossible to move forward with the peace process. My, as you'll, well, actually, if you turn on TV, you can see why I'm pessimistic about the current conditions. I don't, however, believe that uh, it is inevitable that this situation will continue to deteriorate. I believe it is possible that the current conditions will continue to, to, to deteriorate. However, I do believe that uh, uh, it is possible for, for the domestic conditions to change, and I'll say how. And, and then with that, I will then say something about if things do change, then what can be done uh, uh, with regard to the peace process and how we can move forward with the peace process. So let me start with the first question that I, uh, uh, I wanted to raise, and that is the basic characteristics of uh, the Palestinian political system today. After Arafat died, the Palestinian political system became more inclusive but very soon it also became more divisive and more dysfunctional. It has already been highly dysfunctional during the last five, the, the previous five, five years of the Intifada. But with the victory of, electoral victory of Hamas, things have deteriorated uh, even further in terms of the ability of the government to assert itself and provide basic services, including paying salaries for the 160,000 people in the public sector. The first characteristic then of the Palestinian political system is that it's now full of divisions. It is now more dysfunctional than ever. The implications of this, even though, of course, as I already said, the system became more democratic by becoming more inclusive. The Oslo process 10 years earlier has already created a, a highly uh, exclusive political system that denied uh, both the Islamist, as well as the young guard nationalist uh, room in that formal political system. The implications of that have been, one, 
the threat to the Palestinian national unity, peace, and security, what we see today in terms of the threat of civil war. Secondly, it negatively affected the ability of the Palestinians to move forward with regard to state building. Institutions, public institutions have weakened significantly since the victory of Hamas. Thirdly, it has constrained, significantly constrained the ability of the nationalists to negotiate, to continue to negotiate with the Israelis. There wasn't much of negotiations uh, since 2000, but the hope was that Abu Mazen, uh, uh, after his uh, victory in, in his own elections, uh, that he would provide the Israelis with a credible negotiating partner, something the Israelis have been asking for for a long time. Um, of course, with Hamas in power, the Israelis said, we have no partner in Abu Mazen as well. It wasn't just in, in Hamas. The second basic characteristic of the current Palestinian political system is that the balance of power that brought Hamas to victory, electoral victory, and a majority in the parliament hasn't changed since uh, that date in January 2006. If elections are held again today, Hamas would once again win um, essentially what it won back in January 2006. That is about 44% of the popular vote. In other words, the conditions that led to Hamas victory haven't really changed much. What are these conditions? Essentially, three conditions led to Hamas's victory. Number one is that many Palestinians believed that violence pays and that Hamas can deliver violence. Those who believed diplomacy works, diplomacy is viable, voted for Fatah. Those who believed violence pays voted for Hamas. On the day of the elections, a larger percentage of Palestinians believed violence pays than those who believed diplomacy works. The second reason people voted for Hamas is because they focused on issues of state building that are different from the issues that um, Farah supporters uh, wanted. Farah supporters wanted independence, a state. It didn't matter whether that state was democratic, corrupt, etc. Hamas voters wanted a clean government. So on the day of the elections, those who, who, who wanted clean government were much larger in size than those who wanted independence, period. Those who wanted democracy voted for third parties. Those who wanted clean government voted for Hamas. Those who wanted independence, period, voted for Fatah. The third reason for, vote of, uh, for, for the, that structure, the balance of power, had to do with the value system. Those Palestinians on the day of election who believed that traditional values should be preserved, cherished, protected, voted for Hamas. Those who believe that, well, traditional values are important, but also we want liberal, secular values to be introduced as well, voted for Fatah. Those who were anti-traditions voted for the third parties. So, on the day of the elections, there were a larger number of people who believed traditional values are more important than liberal, secular values. None of these three conditions then, issues of peace and war, issues of, of traditions versus liberal values, issues of independence versus clean government and democracy, none of that has changed during the last year and a half. 
these things have been in the making since the start of the Intifada, back in 2000. This balance of power, therefore, is here to stay. It, it could change. What is happening today in Gaza could, for example, negatively affect Hamas's perception in the West Bank. It's still too clear, uh, too early to, to, to tell how the current violence in Gaza is going to affect this balance of power. But for now, uh, this balance of power uh, will continue to constrain peacemaking. The third element in, in the domestic conditions is that the, the most important public institutions in the Palestinian political system are very weak. Uh, these institutions, particularly those uh, in the security sector, um, are fragmented, led by Fatah leaders who um, have been there for a long time. They view these security services as their own fiefdoms. The uh, command and control structures are very weak. The chain of command has been broken a long time ago. There are very strong constitutional and, and legal questions, uh, 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 disagreements over who controls what, the role of the presidency, the role of the parliament, the role of government. Uh, the Palestinian constitution system is a very uh, new one, and there are a lot of disagreements uh, over uh, the, the nature of this constitutional system and, and the powers and responsibilities of the various uh, major public institutions. The last element in the domestic structure, domestic political system, is that the, with the election of Abu Mazen, with the death of Yasser Arafat, the charismatic sort of, uh, historic leader, died. Abu Mazen wasn't able to fill the shoes of, of Arafat. He has been traditionally very weak, has not taken the initiative in the past. He has avoided taking bold steps. <coughs> Uh, he tended to delegate authorities and responsibilities to others uh, instead of leading. With Abu Mazen not showing leadership uh, in, in, and, and setting a direction and, and leading the Palestinian people in that direction, uh, the, uh, I would say also this is true of, of Prime Minister Haniya as well. Um, he's certainly not the most important leader within Hamas, uh, but as a person, his own character is one that also uh, shies away from leadership. These um, four elements of the domestic political system have been created during the last several years by the following factors. Number one, the failure of state building. The Palestinian National Movement, which created, which signed Oslo, created the Palestinian Authority, has been in control since, 19, since uh, 1993, particularly since 1996 when we had the first elections, uh, has failed to deliver strong public institutions, has failed to, deli to deliver clean government, has failed to deliver democracy. Uh, so all those who wanted a democratic political system became disenchanted. All those who wanted clean government became disenchanted with Fatah and with the nationalists. And, of course, those who wanted strong public institutions believe the, 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 the role of the government is to provide law and order, uh, deliver services, etc., became uh, sick and tired of, of, of Fatah. 
So that seriously affected the domestic balance of power. Uh, a second uh, factor that contributed to this state of affairs is the failure in peacemaking. The most important elements of, of that, of course, is that the Palestinians expected Oslo to deliver end of occupation and did not. And the Palestinians therefore started to look to raise questions about the utility of diplomacy. After Camp David, a majority of Palestinians started uh, to, after, and particularly remember that Camp David came after the Israeli unilateral withdrawal from South Lebanon, uh, people began to question, therefore, the utility of diplomacy. With the Israeli disengagement from Gaza, they started to put their trust in violence more than at any time before. Uh, the Israeli measures that are implemented today in the West Bank and in Gaza create conditions where Palestinian threat perception, pain and suffering is, is tremendous, that, that people want revenge, people support factions that is willing, therefore, to bring about that revenge uh, by resorting to violence. The third factor that contributed to this state of affairs is the, the regional environment. Of the regional environment, I would focus on, on four elements very quickly. The war in Iraq, I believe, has contributed significantly to the, uh, to the belief that violence pays. A small insurgency is able to defeat a superpower, so uh, Hamas can easily defeat uh, Palestinians, can easily defeat Israel. Uh, the rise of the Islamists in the region has contributed to emboldening Hamas to take a leading role in Palestinian politics. They can do it. The war in Lebanon has created the impression that Hezbollah has won, Israel has been defeated, Israel's uh, deterrence capacity is gone. Uh, rockets can be very effective. Uh, no matter how primitive they are, they can have strategic uh, impact. And the rise of Iran has provided Hamas with an alternative. An alternative. If Hamas decides to, uh, 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 to, to uh, turn to, uh, away from Egypt, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia uh, because of the sanctions, because of the pressure from the Americans, the Israelis, and, and because Fatah doesn't want to make a deal, it can make a strategic realignment, turn the PA, the Palestinian Authority, uh, uh, towards Iran and create an alliance with the Iranians. Hamas hasn't yet done that, uh, but it, it is not uh, clear that it won't do that in the future. The Mecca agreement that was sponsored by the Saudis, of course, aimed at distancing Hamas from the Iranians so that the strategic realignment won't take place, particularly at this time when the uh, Iraqi situation and the Sunni-Shia divide in, in Iraq and in, in, and in Lebanon is becoming an important element in the dynamics of war and peace. And the Saudis certainly do not want, if, if this question becomes even more relevant with regard to Iran, the last thing they want is to see Hamas uh, in bid with the Iranians uh, at this time. Okay, so these regional peacemaking and, and state-building uh, factors, again, are not easy to change. They have created... Uh, a very depressive environment for the peace process by affecting the domestic environment. So what are the ramifications then for all of this for peacemaking? Well, specifically, I want to mention four things that have been affected. Number one has been the question of partnership. Is there a Palestinian partner 
Israelis will look at the Palestinian domestic conditions and say, of course not. <laughs> they said, of course not, even when our conditions were greatly different, much better than we are in today. But of course, with Hamas unwilling to accept the rules of the game based recognition of Israel, uh, acceptance of previous agreements, uh, renunciation of violence, etc., the Israeli condition is there is no willing partner on the Palestinian side. But they also say there is no able partner on the Palestinian side, able to implement agreements, able to have monopoly over coercive force. There is, of course, they are right about that. The Palestinian Authority lacks the capacity to enforce any agreement it might sign with Israel under the present conditions. Secondly, it affects the constituency. It affects the Palestinian constituency in significant ways. I'll, I'll mention four. One, their belief in the utility of diplomacy versus role of violence. Um, if you believe diplomacy doesn't work and violence does, then that certainly affects your willingness to engage the other side. It affects their optimism about the future. If diplomacy, if negotiations are to be resumed, are they likely to bring about uh, progress, achievements, success? <laughs> Overwhelming majority of Palestinians, of course, today say no. There is no chance that this is going to happen any time in the future. It affects your perception about the other side. Developments in Israel, which I, I'm sure we'll talk about, um, perceived from the Palestinians, uh, create impressions pretty much similar to the impressions Israelis uh, are likely to conclude when looking at the Palestinian side, that Olmert has been weakened, that he has no legitimacy, that any agreement that requires uh, very painful concessions from, from the Israeli side as well as the Palestinian side will require very strong leadership that is able to sell these agreements to their constituency. With Barak and Kadima being so weak, lacking legitimacy and public support, Palestinians conclude the other side is not a partner. Now, what, what this very depressive environment has not affected in a negative way, however, is the willingness to compromise. Palestinians as well as Israelis, in fact, continue to support compromises uh, along the line, save the Clinton parameters, things that Palestinians were not willing to support uh, seven years ago, at the time of Camp David, they are willing to support today. Um, although, to some extent, the Israeli unilateral withdrawal from Gaza has, has lessened the level of support, reduced the level of support, uh, for compromise among Palestinians, there is still a significant part of the Palestinian population, a majority in many cases, uh, that is willing to accept uh, the fundamental compromises that are required for peacemaking with Israel. <coughs> Thirdly, the strategic, this, this domestic environment affects the nature of, of any peace agreement that might be reached. Uh, it's likely to affect the ability of the leaders, Palestinians as well as Israelis, uh, in terms of their willingness to address the fundamental questions in the peace process. Refugees, Jerusalem, holy places, for example, are likely to be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to address given uh, the nature of the domestic environment. So permanent status issues are simply out of the question. Even if we stabilize domestic conditions, it, this will remain out of the question for the time being. But similarly, any agreement that is going to be purely security, such as the security plan that has been recently presented by General Dayton to the parties, 
isn't going to go anywhere. Security only isn't going to work. Permanent status isn't going to work. It's not realistic. What might be uh, realistic is somewhere in between, perhaps a solution to the territorial issue, the creation of a Palestinian state within the context of the Arab League initiative. Something along these lines, I believe, is doable. Um, More than that, I believe, is highly unrealistic. Less than that is not going to be sufficient to make uh, uh, to make to allow progress to be made in the peace process. Now, the domestic conditions, because they, the leaders are weak, because the domestic conditions are so depressive, requires a much greater role for international actors, third-party actors. Here, in particular, it requires a much greater role from Egypt and Jordan, the two neighbors of the Palestinians with a lot of influence. Uh, their willingness to to play such a role, of course, depends on their own domestic assessment of their own conditions, Uh, but they have in the past been willing to play a a role, a supportive role. Uh, They cannot, I believe, replace the Palestinians or the Israelis, uh, but they can play a supportive role. There would be a great deal of, uh, it requires a great deal of of, uh, uh, leadership, particularly from the Americans. Um, It requires it. It it doesn't make it uh, happen, of course. Uh, it requires it, as I said, because the parties, again, are weak and, and they need someone um, to push them. And uh, is, is that someone, the Americans in this case, are they ready and, and willing to do it? In my view, if uh, their assessment of the current situation, if it is similar to my assessment, what I've just presented to you, they are not likely to take up that challenge. Uh, the Bush administration's, I believe, guiding principle in engaging the Israelis and the Palestinians in peacemaking efforts has been, will it work? In other words, unless they have assurances that it will succeed, they're not going to engage based on what happened with Clinton and the Camp David. Their conclusion, I believe, is the risk of failure means we won't do it. Uh, There will also be, uh, but as I said, given the domestic conditions, that's precisely what is needed, a much greater leadership uh, from uh, from the international community, particularly the Americans. Uh, Thirdly, uh, in addition to the role of Egypt and Jordan, in addition to the American leadership, any implementation of any agreement that can be reached, assuming we are able to stabilize uh, the domestic conditions in both Israel and Palestine, would require and a third-party role in the implementation, not only in the monitoring, but in the actual implementation. Europeans in particular uh, would be required to play a significant role in implementing agreements, particularly in the security realm, not to replace Palestinians, uh, but in addition to Palestinians, where Israel would require uh, assurances because of the lack of, complete lack of trust, there would be a need similar to what the Europeans are doing today at, uh, well, they used to do. I'm not sure that they will continue to do it if the conditions in Gaza continue to deteriorate anymore. Um, that is, to, the, 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 their monitoring and their implementation of aspects of the agreement on the Rafah terminal in, in the Gaza Strip. Uh, so these are the, the uh, ramifications, if you wish, for the peace process. Let me say something about this stabilization that I've been mentioning. Uh, The domestic conditions are are terribly bad. You would all recognize that. This is what I started with. So the primacy of domestic conditions, uh, as I said earlier, I believe, uh, must be recognized. 
So my question to me would be, how can we change the parameters of the domestic conditions? Is there a way that we can change it? There are actually four ways in which we can change the current conditions. One uh, has already been implemented, and that is to isolate Hamas. Hamas won the elections, but isolating Hamas has been the policy that the international community, and to some extent Farah, um, has adopted a year and a half ago with the hope that by isolating Hamas, enough pressure will be made uh, so that Hamas would change or will fall. Uh, Hamas didn't fall, and Hamas didn't change. Not in a significant way, at least, to convince the international community uh, uh, that they should engage it. So this has not been effective. A second alternative is to eliminate Hamas altogether via military means. There are two ways of doing that. Fatah can fight Hamas, say, in Gaza and eliminate it, as you probably discover if you turn on television today, Hamas is doing that to Fatah in Gaza. So there is no chance that Fatah is going to be able to do it. But Fatah can do it in the West Bank. If Fatah does it in the West Bank, and there are in fact in Nablus, uh, Fatah and Nablus have decided to do it, at least in Nablus. We'll see whether they will actually implement it. But um, that is certainly one uh, alternative. If isolation doesn't work, just eliminate them completely, militarily. Uh, we'd have, in this case, two states, one in Gaza, one in the West Bank. Israelis won't negotiate with the one in Gaza, but they can negotiate with the one in the West Bank. Uh, is this going to work? I doubt it. I doubt very much that uh, the idea of creating a, a base for extremism, perhaps all types of uh, al-Qaeda groups in Gaza, is going to be acceptable to anyone in the region or to the Israelis uh, and, and the international communities. In my view, this would be disastrous if indeed someone thinks that a military solution in the West Bank, as Hamas has already done or could be doing in Gaza. Third alternative is to go to new elections. Can't isolate them, can't defeat them, perhaps go to new elections and, and change uh, the balance of power in the parliament and in the cabinet. But as uh, I have already stated, this is not likely to work because the three conditions I described earlier that led to Hamas' victory are still here, and they're not going to disappear tomorrow. Uh, unless we work very hard to change them. But to work very hard to change them would require that we ignore them. We ignore the current domestic conditions first, which, as I said, isn't going to happen because nothing is going, because of the primacy of domestic conditions, in my view, this is not going to happen. So you have to change domestic conditions in order to change the balance of power, which the last... Uh, uh, the last means of, of changing the domestic conditions is by actually working with Hamas. That is to create a broad Palestinian coalition of Islamists and nationalists um, with a genuine power-sharing arrangement, a national unity government, in fact, like the one that, was, uh, that has already been created um, through the Mecca Agreement. But hasn't worked so far. This, I believe, is what needs to be made to work. 
the, this broad coalition with power sharing, not only in the political realm, not only in terms of divisions of what ministers go where, but also in terms of power sharing arrangement in the security sector, uh, where Hamas feels most vulnerable or felt most vulnerable, at least in, in, in the West Bank. Now it's probably things are changing in Gaza. Uh, the, this um, last way of changing things is the one that I believe has a much better chance of success than any uh, other means. Um, why do I think so? I think so because Hamas is capable of moderating its views. And I believe that Hamas has, in fact, done so since it has been elected. I don't believe this change has occurred in response to international isolation and international pressure. I think it has changed for other reasons. These are the reasons that I believe Hamas has changed. One is because Hamas is part of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, in Jordan, Egypt, and, and this is not a very extremist group. It's highly pragmatic. Um, it, it has some liberal interpretations of Islam, and it has been willing to play according to the political rules. It has been willing to integrate into the political process. Um, as such, I believe Hamas uh, is not a radical Islamic group. I think one can view it as a mainstream Islamist group with a great deal of potential for change. Five years down the road, well, maybe 10, maybe even 15, who knows, it could be another AKP. It, Haniya, I was told by his political advisor, could very well be the next Erdogan. That I believe very much because of the legacy of the Brotherhood. The second reason why Hamas is moderated because its political elite has been socialized during the last 20 years within the Palestinian context and has, in fact, during the last 20 years, been moderating its views compared to what it was 20 years before, that is, the, when, when the first intifada erupted. This political elite has been socialized in the context that has encouraged them to moderate because that was the price for the inclusion into the informal political structures of, the Palestinian, of Palestinian politics. Third reason is that Hamas's constituency, the 44% who voted for Hamas on the day of elections, are highly moderate. There is a core of Hamas supporters, 20-25%, who, um, who are hardliners. And if Hamas is to listen to this 20-25% uh, of its constituency, it will not moderate its views. If this is uh, what it got on the day of elections, it's highly unlikely, in my view, that Hamas would have done what it had done since it has been elected. And in a minute, I'll say what it had done. Um, the, the constituency, a majority of this constituency, you're giving me two minutes. Two minutes. Two minutes. All right, so I'm about to finish. Actually, I thought I had more time. No, it's okay. A little All right. Okay. All right. I, I was misled. <laughs> Uh, more than 50 in our, in, uh, our latest survey um, which we, we did in, in, in March um, a majority of Hamas supporters 51% or 52% in fact supported a two state solution not only a two state solution in fact but two state solution 
a, a two-state solution in which Palestinians recognize Israel as a state for the Jewish people. This was uh, three years ago, a, only a minority of Palestinians, of all the Palestinians, supported this formula. Uh, in March of this year, 52% of Hamas supporters said they would support this formula. This, and, and this is just one example. Uh, I can, more than 40% of Hamas supporters identify themselves as highly supportive of the peace process. Another 20% consider themselves as either supportive or somewhere between support and opposition. That only leaves about 40% of Hamas supporters who identify themselves as anti-peace process. Um, finally, pressure. Pressure does work. I, I'm not convinced that external pressure works, but pressure does work, particularly if it is internal. The internal pressure, I believe, has been very effective in moving Hamas. Any internally driven pressure, in my view, works. And what is this internally driven pressure? The pressure coming from Farah, the pressure coming from moderate elements within Hamas, I believe has been effective in moving the movement. The movement, well, I don't have time to get into that, but I, I would add, of course, there are limits to this moderation. And the limits are because of the 20 to 25 percent of the constituency of hardliners, Hamas isn't going to make a strategic shift. There is no way that Hamas will wake up tomorrow and say, <clears throat> we accept the three conditions of the quartet. Isn't going to happen. But I believe Hamas will and has been making small steps day after day, month after month, in which they have indicated their moderation and their willingness to move forward given time. Engaging them would encourage the more moderates within Hamas to move even further than they have gone so far. Without engaging them, it will take them much longer period of time before they are able to moderate. Uh, so this is limit number one. and It's, it's not a long list. Number two is their value system. There hasn't really been a change in the value system. Hamas's interpretation of Islam and, and how Islam relates to Israel and, and Israel-Palestine issues, how it relates to democracy, hasn't changed and it's not going to change. And I don't think we should be looking at their value system for moderation. They will moderate through their behavior. The value system will remain as an impediment. It will limit this moderation, but it will not prevent it completely. There will be moderation, but it... But it uh, Okay. Um, uh, I tell you what, I, I, I'll stop here. And I, I, I just want—I only want to leave some time for discussion. Okay. I, yeah, I, I agree I, with I, you. I, I, to make sure you don't miss your plane. No, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a good point. <laughs> Jai fell. I, no, I also wanted to give Shai time to uh, prepare himself. <laughs> What won't we do not to miss the plane? <laughs> anyway, I, I hope, uh, uh, I hope, uh, I can't promise, but I hope to be uh, concise so that we can have enough time for, uh, <coughs> for discussion. Um, I don't, I'm not sure uh, that I counted correctly, but I think uh, today I'll do seven points um, about uh, the the subject matter from the Israeli side of domestic developments and how develop, uh, domestic developments uh, affect uh, the prospects for peace. And 
we will focus, I mean, as Khalil already uh, done, we're focusing uh, on the situation between Israelis and Palestinians, uh, in a sense, uh, coming from the region and sharing uh, with you uh, what our perception is of the, of, the, of the domestic scenes and how they affect uh, uh, the, peace, uh, the prospects for peace. Of course, uh, if you look at it not necessarily from the standpoint of the Middle East, but rather from the standpoint of something we used to do in earlier years, which is called IR theory. Um, this, of course, is also a, a fascinating case study uh, in, in IR theory because we are in this present in this panel today really taking um, what Ken Waltz called the second image, right? The impact of domestic politics on, on, on foreign policy. Uh, but to get a real sense of the full dynamics of the region, uh, it is actually interesting to, to apply this kind of conceptual framework of the, the first image that focuses on man, in this case person, um, uh, and, and within that the role of leaders and how leaders individually affect uh, and their character affect domestic affect um, outcomes. Uh, and the third image, which is of course the international system and how changes in the international system affect, uh, affect outcome. And, and the reason this is important is because one has to also get a sense not only of the manner in which domestic politics affect, for example, the prospects for peace, but what's the relative role of domestic politics compared to the other uh, two levels that Ken Walsh used in his uh, conceptual framework, compared to the role of leaders on one side and compared to changes in the strategic environment uh, on the other side. So I hope that when I uh, talk about, again, back to the Middle East, uh, you'll also think about what this really means uh, as a case study in, uh, in the general uh, theoretical sense. And maybe I'll make one or two remarks that are sort of relevant to that. So let me make those uh, six or seven points that I wanted to make. In terms of the domestic, uh, domestic developments and how they impact on the peace process from the Israeli perspective. The first point uh, that I want to make is that, in my view, the Israeli imperative to uh, end Israel's control over Palestinians in the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem, is as strong uh, as ever, which is to say it has not been weakened. That basic sense has not been weakened by uh, even by the last uh, six years, uh, over six years of violence. And that, uh, in my view, that change, uh, which is to say the, the conclusion of a majority of Israelis that Israel needs to end this story called uh, control or to use the Palestinian narrative which even Prime Minister Sharon adopted in his last year and a half which is the term occupation which he uh, adopted from the Palestinian narrative in his last year and a half that that occupation needs to end and uh, and, the, and, and that, of course, is a big change in comparison to where Israelis were in the 70s and 80s. And the biggest loco and, the, and the most important locomotive that has pushed this change in the Israeli uh, domestic 
discourse is in one word called demography. Is the notion that given the demographic changes uh, in the area between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, that given uh, the demographic trends, uh, the net result of which uh, Jews are about to lose if they have not already lost their majority status in those areas, in that area, this has led an increasing number of Israelis to conclude that given those demographic trends, Israel will not be able to maintain its character as a Jewish and democratic state at the same time unless it ends its control over the vast majority of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem. And, uh, and, and that, is really, that is really a revolution. If you remember, if you remember the, the primary Israeli reflex in the 60s and seven, late 60s, 70s and 80s was to regard a Palestinian state primarily as a strategic threat. Now more and more Israelis regard a Palestinian state as an imperative, uh, as something without which it would be impossible to have a Jewish state. And the Palestinian state has almost become now a prerequisite to having uh, a Jewish state. Now, in parenthesis, again, if I go back to this issue of international relations theory, it's, it's a very interesting question. What, what exactly... Are, is again the relative role of, 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 of different factors in bringing about this change on the Israeli side. In uh, and, and my view, and, and what I would argue, is that to a large extent, Israelis could have adopted the luxury of focusing on the demographic issue because the regional environment changed. Because as long as Israel perceived a threat to its existence from the east, uh, when Iraq presented a major threat to Israel, or at least Israelis perceived Iraq as playing a major threat to, to Israel. And if you recall, after the peace treaty with, Israel, with Egypt in 1979, the Israeli defense discourse in the 1980s talked about the Eastern Front. Well, as a result of lots of changes in the areas, in the, in the parts of the region to the east of Israel, culminating in the Iraq War, with all its negative implications, one positive implication as far as Israeli defense thinking is, Israel no longer faces an Eastern Front threat. And the, the notion that Israel needs to retain the West Bank for security reasons was all tied to Israeli perceptions of the strategic threats that Israel faces from the East. Those strategic threats in the Israeli perception uh, are no longer there or at least have become lesser. And those strategic threats from the East that remain, for example, the possibility that Iran would obtain nuclear weapons, for those kinds of threats, the issue of whether Israel retains the West Bank or not are completely irrelevant. Uh, a nuclear bomb dropped on Israel. Israel cannot reduce the threat of a nuclear bomb dropped on it by Iran by, by having control of the West Bank. So the... The, the role of demography in changing Israeli perceptions is actually partly the result of the changing strategic environment, which is to say the third image made the ability to concentrate on the second image possible. And in that sense, 
because of the demographic locomotive, I would say the demographic locomotive has also essentially ended the ideological debate in Israel. In the 70s and 80s, there was a very strong body of opinion in Israel that advocated infinite or indefinite control over the West Bank. For those who were focusing on this ideologically, the term was Judea and Samaria. Um, the fact of the matter is that that ideological debate that characterized the 70s and 80s is essentially as a result of many developments over. And now the debate remains again focused on security, which is to say now the debate is not about whether Israel should end its control over the West Bank. As I said, I think there is a, war, there is a, a solid majority supporting that. The debate has turned into the issue of how and under what conditions can Israel afford to end its control uh, over the West Bank? So that's the first uh, point I wanted to make. The big, the big change on one hand, um, and now the fact that uh, a, a vast majority of Israelis support uh, the idea of ending Israel's control over the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem, and support the concept of creating a Palestinian state, which is to say resolving the conflict on the basis of a two-state solution. So that's point number one. Point number two is that there is equally now, and that's a change from the last year and a half in contrast to the other changes that took a few decades to take place. The change that happened in the last year and a half is that there is also an equally solid majority among Israelis today that reject the notion that Israel can end its control over the Palestinians unilaterally. The, the conclusion by, of Israelis uh, from the experience of unilaterally withdrawing in, from Lebanon is that that resulted in Hezbollah becoming Israel's northern neighbor. And the experience uh, or the conclusion of Israelis is that Israel's unilateral withdrawal from Gaza in the summer two years ago resulted in unending Qassam rocket attacks on Israel's southern towns and, and settlements. And so the strategic reality uh, and the security environment created by these unilateral moves have led the negative security environment have led many Israelis to conclude that they cannot afford to continue this process to the West Bank unilaterally because the results would be even worse and more ominous for Israel than the unilateral withdrawals from Lebanon and Gaza. Because if the same outcome will be experienced with the West Bank, the threat will not be on a southern town called Shderot that has a population of 25,000. The threat would be on Tel Aviv and the large metropolitan areas uh, in the main valley, and no single airplane will be able to take off or land in, in, in Ben-Gurion International Airport. That's the realities on the ground as a consequence of, the, of adopting unilateral measures. But there is another element or dimension of this which Khalil mentioned in a different context, which is that what Israelis have also concluded as a result of these experiences or experiments with unilateral moves is that one problem, an additional problem to the problems I already mentioned, is that there is no, that it is impossible to control what kind of narrative will the other side adopt about the unilateral moves that you've taken. So while 
my understanding is that the main push to begin to disengage, to end the control, is the issue of demography. The Palestinians, and especially Hamas, pushed a different narrative, the same narrative that Nasrallah of Hezbollah pushed, which is, no, it's not demography, it's violence. We were able to chase the Israelis out through violence. And therefore, this notion that, quote-unquote, violence pays. And if the other side adopts the other domestic structure, adopts a notion that violence pays, that has huge strategic consequences, right? Because then the notion is, well, it already paid twice. Let's, let's continue. Let's try more. Uh, and Israelis have become, as I said, very aware that all of these are negative consequences of uh, a unilateral approach. So the, point, the second point is that, yes, there is continued conviction that Israel has to engage in a process of ending its control over Palestinians, but, it, but the second point is it can't do this unilaterally. The third point is that if it can't do it unilaterally, the implication is you, you have to do it through a negotiation process. And the problem is that for negotiations, just like for deterrence, another aspect of national policy, in both cases, both for deterrence and for negotiations, you need to have an address. And the problem that Israel faces is exactly the problem that Khalil mentioned, which is that Israel perceives itself as facing an increasingly fragmented Palestinian body politic, Palestinian political system. Fragmented between all of these things that Khalil mentioned. Between, between Hamas and Fatah, and within Hamas and within Fatah, and all sorts of other cleavages, especially in Gaza, that are not even related to the main political uh, stream. And if you couple with that what Khalil mentioned earlier, which is the weakness of leadership on the Palestinian side, the fact that somebody like Abu Mazen is considered in, in unable to, uh, not, not necessarily to sign a an agreement, but much more so to be able to deliver, to implement, to execute uh, an agreement. Um, that has, of course, led uh, Israelis to figure that although the only feasible way is through a negotiation process, for the moment, uh, Israel doesn't see a partner uh, uh, for such a process. And related to that is the fact that while I think it is the case, again, that most Israelis would like to see a process that would end Israelis, Israel's control over the Palestinians. And most intelligent or knowledgeable Israelis accept the other dimension of Khalil's description of the Palestinian party politic, which is to say that there remains a majority on the other side that is willing to have a, an agreement with Israel, a two-state solution, something along the Clinton parameters that... Khalil mentioned. But the Israeli perception is that, that the problem is that, yes, there, are, there is this majority, even among Hamas voters, as possibly, as, as Khalil mentioned. But the problem is that the militants control the agenda. The majority that wants an agreement is unable to prevail over the minority of militants, whether they're Hamas militants, Fatah militants, whatever militants, you're talking about, and, and that essentially the, the, the militants now uh, uh, control the agenda. There is an equal understanding on the Israeli side 
that the militants interest is to provoke Israel not only to not continue the process of disengaging but in fact to entice them back to the Gaza because once back in Gaza Israel presents itself once again as a huge target and number two you can go back to the very comfortable traditional narrative which is the Israelis are occupiers so you have this constant effort to entice Israel to reverse the process that began two years ago and go back to uh, Gaza. The thing is that Israelis are not completely stupid and they understand um, that this is what is expected of them. And therefore the great reluctance and the Israeli government and the defense forces are exercising unbelievable restraint because after all the Qassam rocket attacks continue and the town of a sovereign state has practically been abandoned as a result of these attacks and yet there is, great there is great restraint against going in back into Gaza because they understand that that's exactly what the other side, the militants on the other side want to see. So it's almost the, the classical sort of dialogue uh, between uh, the masochist and in this case Israel is the sadist, right? The masochist says, hit me, hit me, and the sadist says, no. <laughs> so... Uh, so this is the problem that Israel faces, which is the result of all these cleavages and the fact that the militants rule the street. What Israel faces today is, uh, is chaos. The fourth, the, that's the fourth point. The fifth point is that in the situation in which Israel faces, perceives that it faces chaos on the other side, there are increasing uh, voices or voices with increasing volume in Israeli political and military um, elite that uh, have kind of given up on the prospect of a negotiation process with the Palestinians. Um, as I said, they've long since abandoned uh, the idea of a unilateral move. And they argue that instead Israel should explore the possibility of reaching a negotiated agreement with Syria. No one in Israel, I think, has an illusion of how costly that agreement will be as far as Israel is concerned. Nobody has an illusion in Israel that you can reach an agreement with Syria for anything less than a total withdrawal from the Golan Heights. But in a situation where you face uh, this chaotic uh, uh, reality on the Palestinian side, the Syrian option has one great appeal. And the great appeal is the Syrians present you with a clear address. The address has just been re-elected by a margin of 97.7%. Um, uh, and that, of course, is a great, uh, is a great uh, temptation. So, so that's the fifth point about how these domestic scenes affect, uh, affect uh, the, the prospects for peace. The sixth point is simply to say, and I don't think that any fair and balanced assessment of the scene can ignore the fact that you also have weakness on the Israeli side. That the Israeli government and political system emerged from the last summer's war with Hezbollah very, very weak. And this continues to be the case with these continuous investigation commissions, uh, the most important of which the Winograd Commission issued its report a few weeks ago. Um, uh, Olmert's popularity is very difficult to conceive how it can get lower. Uh, but even more worrisome, there is some trust, some loss of trust uh, also uh, in, in, in institutions. 
the only uh, and that and therefore uh, you have what Khalil mentioned earlier, which is Palestinians perceiving that they don't have an Israeli address. The difference, although I would say this, the difference between I would say only make two points about this. Number one is that yes, there is at the moment serious weaknesses on the Israeli side as well. The difference is though is that right now what you experience in the Israeli case is weakness of leadership. That's very different from the kind of endemic fragmentation that you have uh, in this Palestinian body politics that, uh, that Khalil uh, described earlier. And the second thing is that the results of yesterday's uh, election uh, primaries in labor, uh, which of course would mean that a defense that the, the bottom line of the impact of that domestic development is that Olmert for the first time would have a real partner inside this coalition, which is to say until now Olmert had two problems. He did not have a Palestinian partner, but he also didn't have a labor partner because the labor leadership was so weak, especially weak on the kind of issues that we're dealing with, peace and security and so on. Now, uh, a defense minister that didn't know the first thing about defense is at least replaced by someone who spent all of his life on defense. Former Prime Minister, former Minister of Defense, former uh, Chief of Staff of the Armed Forces. I'm not a big fan, but, there is, but at least no one can take from him the credentials of being, of being a, an authority on defense uh, issues. And in any move that we're talking about where you need to take, make concessions, take risks, you need to have with you a partner that can face the public and say, I'm telling you now as a professional, my professional judgment is we can take the risks involved. Yes, it involves serious risks, but we can take those risks involved. Until now, Olmert did not have such a partner. As of yesterday, for the first time, uh, he has one. Uh, finally, uh, I'll go back to an issue that Khalil mentioned, and with that I will end, which is, if uh, the, the, begin, the process that I mentioned that has begun on the Israeli side uh, of the domestic scene possibly beginning to sort itself out in some one way or another, if it is coupled with cha positive changes on the Palestinian side, it's very difficult at the moment to see, but not impossible, if Palestinians reach the conclusion or enough Palestinians reach the conclusion that sliding further would bring them to the kind of civil war that we experienced in Lebanon in the 70s and 80s and, 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 and walk back or step back from the, from the abyss and stabilize their scene and somehow produce an address so that each side has an address on the other side. I'll just end by a point in it, with a point that uh, Khalil mentioned, which is then it boils down to the question of, okay, if we go back to the negotiation table, what would these negotiations be about? So Khalil already mentioned that the first option of just trying to stabilize the situation probably isn't going to work because all previous stabilization plans that were not connected to a larger political horizon have failed. I also completely agree with you that any attempt with Khalil that any attempt to go back to permanent status negotiations would also fail because the conditions today are worse than they were in the year 2000 and we can get into greater detail. So the only thing that's possible is somewhere something in between. And when you think about something in between, I just mentioned a few building blocks. I think Khalil mentioned some of them. I'll just mention them and with that I will end. Number one is to remind everyone 
that before the summer's war with Hezbollah, when Prime Minister Olmert, before he became Prime Minister, ran the elec- his election campaign, he, elect- he ran it on a program called, or a platform called Convergence. And he didn't give numbers, but most people attributed to him the idea that Israel would withdraw from 90% of the West Bank. He thought that of, at the time, to do this unilaterally. The unilateral dimension of this is dead. But the idea that Israel can withdraw from 90% of the West Bank, which of course means also relocating a large number of small settlements, uh, is of course, it's there, because Olmert believed in this, and it's hard to believe that he's abandoned it. So this is the first building block. The second building block is an attempt to, to create some kind of an armistice. An armistice is more than a ceasefire. It's a more permanent attempt to, uh, to, to, stop, to stop the fighting. That is in, in international term. It's been adopted by some Israelis. Hamas's corollary to this is what Khalil mentioned earlier, is the concept of a hudna. A hudna basically is, uh, in Islamic history, a long-term, maybe comprehensive armistice. So that's the third building block. The fourth building block is the, is the second phase of the roadmap. If any one of you is masochistic enough to go back to read the roadmap, uh, you'll discover that the second phase in this three-phase uh, uh, approach or proposal is something called a Palestinian state with provisional uh, borders. So that's number four. And number five, which Khalil usually mentions, is the Arab initiative. The Arab initiative goes back to the relationship between domestic and strategic. Because the, what is the Arab initiative? In Telegraphically, the Arab initiative offers Israel, in exchange for far-reaching Israeli concessions, the most difficult of which is to withdraw to the 1967 lines, in exchange of that, that the Arab world offers Israel to embrace it in the region. And now you'll go back to the domestic. This is strategic. But it has domestic implications. Because Israelis, while they've become more and more pessimistic about the ability to to coexist peacefully with the Palestinians, primarily as a result of the experience of the last five or six years of the Second Intifada, the Israeli dream is to be embraced, integrated, accepted by the Arab world at large. Israelis would like to do business with the Gulf, right, with, the, with Saudi Arabia, with Qatar, with Bahrain, with Oman, with Kuwait, and so on and so forth. And it's no wonder that that Arab initiative originated from Saudi Arabia, because the Saudis understood that this is what the Israelis would like to hear. And, and the original intention was to appeal above the Israeli government to the, American peop- to the, to the Israeli people. And, uh, uh, and, and so that is an, another building block. And since the Arab states have decided to revive uh, their initiative now, I think that's another fifth building block in a, in, in a future attempt. Again, once miraculously, you could almost say this is fantasy land, the domestic scenes that we focused on would stabilize and people would have to then figure out, okay, now that we can negotiate, what would we negotiate about? These are the building blocks for this in-between option that is probably the only feasible one. Thank you very much indeed. I'm very sorry to hold you both down, but I was anxious to allow the audience some time for quick comments and questions. 
do we have some groving mics? Good. Um, what I would like to do is to take uh, three or maybe even four questions in, in groups uh, and to allow uh, that uh, as a full expansion. I, I saw Katerina first, uh, who will start by assuring us that everyone who took Dr. Dalakova's course has read the Cortex Roadmap. No, I haven't. <laughs> um, it's a question about the um, Quartet's conditions uh, on Hamas, uh, and it's a question to both of you, uh, if you may. Um, there, there are three conditions, uh, renouncing violence, uh, recognizing Israel, and recognizing past agreements. But my question is, is there a way of differentiating between them uh, using international law? For example, it is clear that terrorist violence is illegal in, in international law, indeed in, in domestic law, but can we differentiate that uh, condition from, say, the condition of recognizing past agreements, which uh, seems to me to, me to be a more political um, uh, condition? Thank you. Thank you. Um, can I see other, uh, others who want to ask questions? That gives me a sense. Uh, it's a question for Professor Feldman. If you could just briefly sketch what the public opinion uh, position is or how it's articulated around the question of settlements in the West Bank and whether there is a difference now. What, you, what your opinion is about what? Uh, the settlements. Uh -huh. The settlements in the West Bank and whether you see there has been change in how the settlement issue is, uh, is perceived in public opinion today. Thank you. Sorry. That was Costanza Muzu. Can I ask you all to give your names as you, as, as you start? Yes, question at the back. Arnold Eder. Can you hear me? That's better. Hold it close. Fine. Can you hear me now? Yes. Right. Um, I think um, it's quite clear from your, your uh, description of the situation that it's pretty hopeless to think of any sensible negotiations from the point at which we are now. Um, but there have been many occasions in the past where particularly Israel has had the opportunity of initiating what we call confidence-building measures and in that extent would have helped uh, the moderate Palestinian leadership, particularly Abu Mazen, um, in such measures as releasing prisoners, uh, alleviating the living conditions, and, and in that way, step by step, it would have perhaps strengthened the moderate uh, camp on the Palestinian side in recognizing that there is some value in diplomacy. But it seems that Israel has set its face quite firmly against that. Could you suggest why that has been and if there is any prospect of any change? Um, one more question. There was one over there. Um, the young man in the slightly pinkish shirt. It's <laughs> an interesting description. Uh, hi, this is a uh, question for uh, Professor Feldman. Um, I was just wondering, uh, you mentioned that there's a growing... Um, sort of agreement amongst um, Israelis, you weren't specific, but amongst Israelis um, for a two-state settlement. Um, and I just really wondered, um, on the spectrum of, of uh, states running from 
um, the sort of um, severely curtailed sovereignty, um, delegated sovereignty, um, which Oslo looked to be leading to, um, all the way up to um, full territorial sovereignty, um, which obviously the Israelis have. Um, where is this um, proposed state that, that um, the Israelis, um, uh, you mentioned, increasingly uh, in favour of? Thank you. Hello, uh, <laughs> the quartet conditions, as stated, are conditions that I believe Hamas cannot accept. Based on its own ideological beliefs, value system, and because of its concern about losing its core constituency, it isn't likely uh, to go that route. But I think Hamas uh, has been and will continue to show moderation in all uh, the three elements. It won't recognize Israel, but it says it recognizes Israel on the effective basis and it wants to have normal relations, normal state-to-state relations with it. Um, it says it, it will not renounce violence, but it says it's willing to accept an immediate ceasefire and if it is mutual and it is in the West Bank and Gaza and is, is willing to uh, agree to a, a hudna, a long-term hudna. It could be 10 years, to 20, 30, 40 We've heard a lot of um, Hamas people talk about various numbers. It says it won't it, it will not accept uh, the, the condition that talks about accepting uh, existing agreements, but it says, and this is part of the Mecca agreement, it respects those agreements. So there has been an attempt to meet the international community halfway. It is not full agree. It is not fully endorsing these, and I don't think this is going to happen soon. But there is willingness uh, uh, to uh, to move forward, and I think, given time, we will continue to see that kind of moderation, small steps um, that that gradually builds on on previous ones. Um, this is they are capable of because of the pragmatic nature, I believe, of the leadership, and because of the uh, moderate nature of his constituency. Uh, I, I believe because of that we will continue to see that happening. The problem is it will take a long time until somebody in Washington, the White House, will say, okay, so now they have met the conditions. It isn't going to happen that way. Unless Washington and people in the White House start engaging Hamas, it will indeed take a very long time, and we don't really have that kind of luxury. Engagement, in my view, helps to reduce, uh, the, helps to speed up the process of moderation within, within Hamas. Lack of engagement, in my view, will make it tougher for Hamas to, uh, to move forward. Um, I think that was the only question addressed to me. Okay, Chai. Well, I, the artillery fire was in this direction. <laughs> Uh, let me, yeah, well, if you, you know, if I feel free to object. Um, on the first question, uh, my own view about this um, is you asked about whether it was possible to, to, to differentiate between, uh, between the three, uh, the three uh, conditions. My, my own view, uh, and I don't think that you know I don't think this is something where I can describe the Israeli view because I don't think that the Israeli view 
or the Israeli public or even the Israeli elite looked at this issue with such resolution that allowed it to differentiate between these three, the three preconditions. My own view is that the only, that the really important one among them, you'll be surprised to hear, is actually the third one, which is operated, which is that the new government assumes the uh, responsibilities and the commitments and the other undertakings of the previous Palestinian government, which means that we don't start everything from scratch and we don't basically throw all the understandings and agreements and so on and so forth out, uh, out the window. And the precedent, I think that the precedent that Israelis, uh, if they didn't think about, should have been thinking about, is the fact that when, when uh, Netanyahu and came, won the elections in July 1996, and Likud came to power in July 1996, having campaigned for three years, or almost three years, since September 1993 when the Oslo Accords were signed, against the Oslo Accords and against the process. Netanyahu, the day he became prime minister, ad accepted, adopted all the commitments that the previous Israeli government undertook and said, this was our position as Likud. This was my position as a political leader. But now we are the government. And now I'm the prime minister. And I can't say, okay, with that I erase the, the, the commitments that the previous government has undertaken. And from the Hebron Agreement to the White River Accords, Netanyahu entered into agreements with the Palestinians that were part of the Oslo process. Hebron Agreement was part of the implementation of Oslo. And why simply continued Israel's disengagement? It, of course, got derailed at the end. But when you're talking about position in principle, Netanyahu adopted the Oslo process de facto. As, and, and, the, and the Jura, because he did it by, by, by announcing this. So, so in my view, uh, this is really the important operative dimension of these three. From an Israeli standpoint, I have to say, I am somewhat in a minority view on this as an Israeli. To say, for me, you'll be surprised to hear, the least important of the three is the issue of recognizing Israel. Frankly, as an Israeli, I feel that I don't need them to recognize Israel. Israel is a permanent fact. After 60 years, in a situation in which, give it, look at the Arab initiative. What's the Arab initiative? The entire Arab world has come to terms with the fact that Israel is a, is, is a, is a fact in the Middle East that you have to come to terms with. So Israel needs Hamas to recognize it? I mean, it's almost uh, demeaning or humiliating to think that Israel with a GDP larger than all of its neighbors combined, with a GDP per capita 20 times that of Egypt, needs Hamas to recognize it. It's almost preposterous to me, personally. But of course, other people have their opinions. Um, <laughs> second, uh, where is the Israeli view on, uh, on settlements? See, I, think, I am of the view that the only reasons the settlements still exist I'm not talking about the large blocks, but I'm talking the majority of the settlements in the Arab populated parts of the West Bank. Uh, I would say almost all the Israeli settlements on the other side of the security barrier. The only reason they exist until now is that there has not been an alternative and negotiated option to disengage. But from Rabin 
on to Sharon. And Sharon was of quintessential importance here because he was the father of the Israeli settlement project. But look at what he said about the settlements and settlers during the last six, during the disengagement. They are the debate about disengagement. The thing that drove the settlers nuts was not that he all of a sudden cha said, changed his mind. It's that in changing his mind and in trying to bring the country with him, he basically delegitimized a large part of the settlers' community. And, uh, and, and uh, so that's point number one. Point number two, when I think about it from the point of view of the settlers, and that has to do with the second reason, well, the same reason of why the settlements still exist. The settlers' nightmare was that after Israel's disengagement from Gaza, there would be a Palestinian decision to stop all forms of violence from Gaza to Israel. Why was this the settlers' nightmare? The settlers in the West Bank. Because the settlers feared, and rightly so, that if the Palestinians ceased all forms of violence from Gaza following Israel's withdrawal, the conclusion of the vast majority of Israelis will be, we can safely withdraw. So in, in that sense, what Hamas has done and the others have done, which is to continue the Qassam rocket attacks from Gaza, played wonderfully into the settlers of the West Bank's hands. That's exactly what they wanted to see. Because that allowed them to make the argument, which they continue and make effectively to this very day, you withdraw, this is what you will expect. Now you want to withdraw from the West Bank, from where we are, we the settlers reside. Every place where we will evacuate, Hamas will come and take our place. And what you will see in Shderot, what you saw in Shderot, which is an evacuation of a town, you will see in, in Ben-Gurion International Airport. Believe me, the first Qassam rocket attack that lands anywhere close to Ben-Gurion International Airport, there will be an immediate phone call from the insurance company that insures British Airways to say, you fly one more flight into Tel Aviv, we cancel your insurance. And they know that. So that, that makes their, their argument so strong. That's, I think, sort of two points about where the settlers' issue is. The second, third question was about confidence-building measures. My own view about this is that Israel has been too stingy in, uh, and not generous enough in trying the avenue of confidence-building measures, and including on the, one of the issues you mentioned, which is prisoner release. And I think there were definitely junctures along the way in which Israel could have, maybe, may have affected, may have been able to affect the internal debate on the Palestinian side by taking steps that might have empowered, for example, Abu Mazen. I think by the time he became president, it may have been too late. But when he was prime minister and challenged Arafat, uh, if Israel was a little bit more generous at the time, if Israel also was wise when it did take some gestures to, take the, to give Abu Mazen the gestures so that Abu Mazen will get the credit for these gestures, I think that, uh, uh, that yes, uh, Israel should have done more uh, in that respect. But at the same time, one also has to remember 
that to go back to the point that I already made, and it's also a point that's relevant to the fourth question, which is to keep in mind the fact that Israel faces a nightmare. Right? The nightmare is that the reality that we now see in Gaza will be replicated in the West Bank. So the problem you see is that on one hand, here is the dilemma. The last, there is a, a request now by the Americans to significantly reduce the number of checkpoints in the West Bank. Now, I can tell you, Israelis, even those at the top of the defense uh, community, they're not total idiots. They actually happen to realize an astonishing fact that, in fact, checkpoints create real hardships for the Palestinians. And that, in fact, in the end, the, 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 the hardships and the humiliation that Palestinians experience in these checkpoints breed more violence and more propensity, anger, which results in violence. But at the same time, again I stress, the Israeli nightmare is that what Israel will see is a huge terrorist wave, something that you see in Gaza today. So the question is, and, and now you have to remember that when you're talking about that leadership, whether it's political leadership or defense leadership, they know that their whatever is on the line. Right? They will be held accountable if you will see a situation where because of this free movement back and forth, that the free movement would not just be of you know, uh, good-willing, normal citizens who just want to go about their lives, but that would also be exploited by people who've developed by now an expertise in moving people and weapons and ammunition and, and so on and so forth. And that movement of weapons and ammunition, <laughs> that you see in Gaza. That you see in Gaza despite everything. Despite the best efforts of the Egyptians until now, you see massive influx of weapons and ammunition into Gaza. Now imagine that Israel just one day said, okay, you know what, as a gesture, we lift all these checkpoints. That also has to do with the fourth question that was asked of me, which is what kind of state does Israel envisage? The dilemma of Israel with respect to that future Palestinian state is almost the same. Because on one hand, Israel has an interest in that Palestinian state being viable, which means sovereign. But when, the, when, when we begin the discussion of what are what my friend Khalil Chikaki calls attributes of statehood, the first and one of the most important from their standpoint of attributes of statehood is control over exit and entry points. And the issue then is, given the fact that you are now at, uh, you know, after a hundred years of conflict and after the last uh, six or seven years of very heated conflict, can you just say, okay, you know what, I'm out of the business of trying to affect what goes in and out of that state. In other words, no presence, no controls over uh, the travel of people and, by implication, weapons and ammunition into that Palestinian state. Now, so by definition, there is no way to, uh, to, to, find, to, to, to address Israel's real security concerns without some limitations on that Palestinian state's sovereignty. Now, does that mean that Israel has to be in those exit and entry points? No. It's quite possible, as Khalil mentioned, 
earlier that this is exactly where, for example, third parties can play a role. But uh, I have to be fair to the Palestinians. Even if it's a third party, even if it's uh, you know nice guys from the EU, that's still it is still it, there's, it, you have to be blind not to see this as a constraint on your sovereignty. So so the idea that there would be you know, that that state would be completely and totally independent and sovereign, and that you won't have at least during a considerable interim period where people which would allow the two parties to build trust in one another. Uh, you, you'd have to have third party. Now, that it's possible, I'm convinced. Why am I convinced? Because there is a very good example on the ground between Israel and Jordan. You know that uh, when a truck uh, travels from Irbid in northern Jordan to Israel today, it crosses, the, it crosses the, 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 the checkpoint into Israel. The truck is not even checked. It's not even checked. It's not even scanned. And the reason is that there is a, an agreement between Israel and Jordan, and also by implication with the Jordanian defense community, that a truck leaving the, the factory in Irbid is being checked by the Jordanian security services. And the level of trust that exists between the Israeli security services and the Jordanian security services is such that allows Israelis the freedom of saying, we don't need to check it, we can rely on new Jordanians. This is a result of a process that took a number of years of building trust in, in one another. And that means that there is no reason why, by definition, this won't be possible in the future with the Palestinians. But for that, the Palestinians have to begin to behave like Jordanians. And for all the reasons that, Ham that Khalil mentioned earlier, they're not exactly yet there. There are a great many more questions that one would love to pose, but I'm conscious that we do have to let you go, and it is half past seven, and some of you will have to go as well. So at this point, I would like to thank both of our speakers for their honesty about the situation, the, the attempted balance, and we have to avoid saying fair and balanced because that's the Fox News slogan. The third word I always <laughs> use is, the key third word is dispassion. Very good, yes. And uh, regret that we will have to return to this subject many times more in the future before we begin to see the resolution that we all hope for. Thank you very much indeed.